Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, philosophers, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Arjun Seti. He's a community activist, civil rights lawyer, writer, and law professor based in Washington, D.C. He's the author of American Hate, Survivors Speak Out. In it, he chronicles the stories of individuals affected by hate. In a series of powerful, unfiltered testimonies, survivors tell their stories in their own words and describe how the bigoted rhetoric and policies of the Trump administration have intensified bullying, discrimination, and even violence toward them and their communities. It's a powerful book, and we had a, a deep conversation about it. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Arjun Seti. Arjun, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. And this is uh, your new book, American Hate, uh, Survivors Speak Out. I mean, did you design this as kind of a beach read, kind of light reading for the summer? <laughs> I mean, it's a, pretty, it's a pretty heavy book on a pretty timely subject. Yeah, quite the opposite. American Hate Survivors Speak Out is a collection of testimonials of people targeted by hate and state violence, either before the 2016 presidential election or under the Trump administration. Um, and there are plenty of stories of heartbreak and tragedy in those pages. But um, while it's not beach reading, you will also find stories of optimism, resilience, and hope as well. Yeah, that I, I was struck by that, particularly the opening story from a woman who was a Syrian refugee bringing her son over and experienced awful discrimination in Boise, Idaho, awful. And her capacity to forgive, to be hopeful about the human condition, and even going after being assaulted, even going to her, uh, her the assaulter's court hearing and asking that he not be jailed, because that would only isolate him and exacerbate his his issues. I mean, I thought that was just remarkable that she had that kind of hope in in the America and the human condition. Asma Albukai's story is, is exceptional, and it's why I decided to have it be the first testimonial in the book. Uh, Asma is the first Syrian refugee to ever be resettled in Idaho, and she came um, from Egypt. I think she had to take four different flights with her two sons, settled in Boise, and then encountered all kinds of discrimination. She talked about how when she was learning to drive and she would drive slow or make a wrong turn, someone would yell menacing things about Muslims or about ISIS, how when she'd be at the grocery store and she would just by accident nudge somebody with her cart because that sometimes happens. People would say that thing around your head is wrapped too tight. Can you not think or something? And then she talks about this terrible tragedy in downtown Boise where a man came up to her younger son and said, are you Muslim? And when he said yes, he would punch to the ground. And then Asma recounts how she was invited to court and was asked by the judge at the sentencing hearing what should happen to the suspect and how she said that, in her opinion, the suspect shouldn't go to jail. 
because if he were to languish in jail, he wouldn't learn about Muslims, refugees, uh, Syrians, and how what he really needed to do was spend time uh, and learn from the community that he had targeted. And it's really an extraordinary example of pain and discrimination, but also somebody resisting and, and rising above it. Yeah, I, I No, I don't want to be stereotypical or prejudiced in my approach to this sort of thing, but I, I would think of all the places you could relocate someone, Boise wouldn't be ideal. I mean, wouldn't you want to put someone in a metropolitan area that's got some more people that are represented from the people group? I mean, it just seems like a big roll of the dice to put someone in a part of the country where there might be not not that there's not racism everywhere in America. Of course there is, but but with exposure and familiarity, sometimes temperatures run a little lower. And I mean, I just that's it's it's interesting. Why a place like Boise for her? I, well, you know, the U.S. government makes that decision in consultation with um, state governments. But you know, when Asma she talks in the story about how she first heard that she would be resettled in Boise, Idaho, because it was on a document she received in Egypt, and it said Boise ID, and she didn't know what it was. So she called, you know, one of her few English-speaking friends in the UK, and this friend said, snow and potatoes. So here's poor Usma thinking that the only things in Boise, Idaho are snow and potatoes, because that's all she knew. There's, so, there's at least like six or seven other things. Absolutely, there's, there's a lot of things in Boise, and and uh, it, it it is it does it has a, a, an increasingly diverse population. Um, but there's no question there are many other places where she could have been settled, where she would have had a much easier time acclimating, adjusting, um, and for her kids as well. But the U.S. government often chooses these places based on things like cost of living, and you know, the outskirts of Boise, Idaho are a lot cheaper than Brooklyn or D.C. or the suburbs of Virginia outside D.C. I'm interested. I mean, you tell some stories about the discrimination you faced just flying, just traveling across the country doing these interviews. And and I'm sure those weren't the first in your own story. I'm, I'm wondering, as someone that's a Sikh, is it sort of plus or minus that people don't know that much about your faith? Is it like, is that, is, is it make discrimination better, harder? <laughs> I mean, like they lump you in with somebody else very often. I mean, cause it's, 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 it's a, it's a people group, a religious group that again, faces there are all sorts of stereotypes and prejudices. And yet it's one that people don't know as, as much about as say Islam or Judaism. Not that people know a ton about other religions in general, but I would think, being a Sikh, there's there's less familiarity, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to say there. So in connection with working on the book, I was nearly driven off the road in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I was stared down by a cashier and a customer. And, and at American University in Washington, D.C., I was intentionally misdirected on campus by a student. You know, many times Sikhs are targeted because we look different. Um, and our articles of faith uh, often distinguish us 
um, from others. Um, I can be identified by my long hair, which I cover with a turban and my beard. Those alone make us targets. But yes, on top of that, we are sometimes also targeted because we are mistaken uh, for Muslims and other communities. But I do think Sikhs deserve a lot of credit because in the aftermath of 9-11 on through today, we haven't thrown anyone under the bus. We've never come out and said, we're not Muslim, leave us alone. Um, It's always been a shared steadfast commitment to solidarity and recognizing that, um, you know, only when all of us are free, will we all be free. Yeah, you tell a story about some Lebanese Christians in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who had this neighbor who terrorized them and ultimately was violent, locked up. The bail bond was sort of was too low. He got and wound up shooting their son. I mean, it's a horrible, tragic, gut wrenching story. But there is this connection to something you just said that they were torn because they were discriminated against. As Muslim, and people kind of shouted Muslim slurs against them, assuming they were Muslim, and they're they're torn because they're like, well, we're Orthodox Christians, and and given some of the tensions in in, yeah. in the military, it's a, it's an identity, it's a proud identity marker. We don't, and yet they also we don't want to throw Muslims under the bus. Like we don't want to say we don't want to we don't want to sort of distance ourselves from people that are discriminating, they're being, they're suffering at the hands. And you tell stories throughout the book of one of the things that, that also is a source of hope is seeing solidarity at points where people don't divide and conquer or don't run, run, cut and run, but actually stand with other marginalized people. Yeah. You know, I'll actually take a second and, and, and tell everyone the story of college Ibarra because every American um, should know his story um, so the Jabaras are, Arab and, and it's not going to make it on cable news. I mean, and it should. I mean, it, I mean, this is this is an it's incredible story, gut wrenching, heartbreaking, um, and it will shatter your heart. Um, so the Jabaras fled um, the Lebanese Civil War and settled in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and they made a good home for themselves until a white supremacist moved next door. Uh, who terrorized them? I uh, moved in right with his like with a relative. Was he? Did the house sell? I, I forget because the did he move in with someone or did the house sell? Yes. We we don't exactly know the relationship between him and the other person, but he had a roommate, so he moved in next door with a man who was their pre-existing neighbor. And, and the man who was the pre-existing neighbor really liked Khalid. Like Khalid Absolutely. spent Khalid Absolutely. spent a lot of time over there and helped yeah. him with computer stuff, and it it was a source of. Uh, real set, you know, Khalid had a, a real genuine neighbor that, that loved Absolutely. him. Absolutely. Until this additional person moved in next door and terrorized this poor family, calling them things like dirty Arabs, dirty Muslims, ISIS. And then one day he ran over Haifa Jabara. This is the mother of the family in his car. She sustained numerous injuries, was hospitalized for weeks, barely survived. The next door neighbor was arrested, was not allowed to post bond because of his prior history terrorizing the family and because he had committed a violent crime against this woman. But then a new prosecutor was appointed to the case who didn't know the case history. And when the defense counsel 
put forward a renewed motion for bond, it was granted. So this white supremacist was allowed to return home next door to the family he terrorized, and then months later murdered Khalid Jabara on his front doorstep. And it's a tragic story because it was such a preventive, and those are just some of the details. There's a lot more I can share. Um, but it was an entirely preventable crime. But the Jabaras absolutely deserve a lot of credit because in the wake of that hate crime, they didn't come out and they were targeted because they were Arabs. They were targeted also because this next door neighbor thought they were Muslims, even though they're not. And they deserve a lot of credit because they never came out and said, we're not Muslim, right? They came out and said, we're Arab and we're Christians and we have rights and so do Muslims. And it's a great example of how to embrace solidarity and intersectionality uh, in the most trying of circumstances. Yeah. And you talk about the sort of American dream. I mean, you talk, when you think about Americana and, and a family, I mean, the, the, as the, as the, the surviving family tells their story, they were a family that really were embraced being Americans. I mean, was it Khalid was like the lead and he, his sister convinced him to go out for Aladdin, to, Aladdin. to play Aladdin. And she was this good looking kid that was very charming. They were kind of, they were like, we were jealous of how charming he was. And he, he would just get free stuff. And he was, he, free stuff. But he was, he was like kind of he living the American. He, give him free stuff. He yeah. would go on planes and people would put him in first class because he was such an attractive young person, you know, and he played Aladdin in an in, in elementary school play. I mean, the, the, these people embrace this country. Even now they embrace America, despite the institutions of this country turning their back on them. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's interesting because Brett Stevens, the New York Times columnist, conservative columnist, published a few uh, a column a few months ago saying, yeah, we, we need to throw children of immigrants out of this country. And he's talking about uh, sort of, white people <laughs> they're terrorizing people so you know children of previous immigrants that are terrorizing people that but i mean and it, the thing was tongue-in-cheek but serious on, on a level that that you have it, the irony here and the tragic irony is is you have the the white nationalist who really probably doesn't have a sense of of what Amer america is about a sort of uh, this, this ideal of a, of a place that's kind of over against a kind of pre-modern nationalism, you know, and his neighbors who he's terrorized, they do have a sense of it, right? They get it. <laughs> they get it better than most people that are native born here. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I, let me, may I ask, were, were your parents born here? I mean, or, or did they immigrate? They were, they were uh, born in India. Okay. So you're a civil rights attorney. Yeah. Do you, I mean, I'm sure they're immensely proud of your work, but are they ever pressure you like, couldn't you do something like more lucrative? Like we came here, corporate law. <laughs> I mean, isn't there like, I mean, that's an incredibly noble thing to, to do, to get a law degree and then do something that's not, it's not, you're not going to lie in your pockets the way you would if you were sort of doing things for fortune 500 companies. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, when I first came out of law school, I worked at a firm, um, I was in private practice and had a really good experience. But as many young lawyers who work at firms uh, one day realize, you have to make a decision about what you want your life to be about and why you went to law school. And I was at a big firm for six years. I did a lot of pro bono work when I was there. I represented Guantanamo detainees, national security detainees, asylum seekers, victims of domestic violence, um, you know, targets of profiling. But 
I didn't want that to just be a pro bono practice. I wanted that to be the core and center of my career. So I made the decision about four years ago, you know, to go full time into civil rights work, maybe a little longer. Um, and it's been great and it's been extraordinary. And I love being a civil rights lawyer, but also working with communities. Um, I mean, one of the themes of the book is, you know, if we want to solve the problem of hate and misunderstanding in America, we've got to be proximate. You know, there are so many people who get on television who pontificate um, about hate and racism and bigotry. And some of them have studied the phenomenon, but most of them have actually not. And they're just pundits and they never met with survivors and they've never spoken to survivors, and never sat down with impacted communities in their homes and houses of worship and community centers. And I think we just need to do that work. And, you know, my parents, I think, increasingly understand that. Last, actually, two nights ago, um, I gave a talk at the Carter Presidential Library in Atlanta. And I had my mom come with me. So she did. And she had a wonderful evening. Um, there were about 75 people there. We had a great discussion. It lasted about an hour and 15 minutes. I, I gave an overview of the book. I read from a few of the testimonials. And at the end, four local advocates actually took to the stage and challenged the audience to get engaged in local advocacy issues in Atlanta um, on all kinds of issues, including Confederate monuments and sanctuary and the like. And I think she felt really proud to be there. Yeah, because on, on the ground, things are messier, right? I mean, you, 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 you talk about in the book intentionally you're trying to let victims of hatred and discrimination and racism and, and, and other kinds of awful discrimination tell their stories because oftentimes even if you if it does make it to mainstream news it's editorialized it's stylized and the story is told through someone else's lens and often right for someone else's purposes uh which 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 may not be nefarious sometimes they may be but 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 that they are uh, it is a lens it is an agenda that that generally the the victim doesn't control right the, the the agenda is definitely not one that doesn't it's one that generally doesn't originate from the existential si situation of the victim yeah i mean the stories of survivors are reduced to single headlines sound bites uh maybe a short clip maybe a short quote and that's it and i think it's important that we give a platform to survivors to tell their stories to talk not just about the recent incidents of hate they've experienced in Donald Trump's America, but how it connects back to hate that they've experienced um, in many cases for time immemorial, because this country has a tragic history of racism, bigotry, and discrimination, and how they're moving forward despite it all. I mean, the survivors I met with are resilient and they are hopeful, but some of them are lonely and isolated. You know, in the immediate aftermath of a hate crime, they're thrust into the spotlight, um, and people seem to care. But as the hours, days, and weeks pass, and the world moves on, they're still struggling. You know, I, the, it, it's what the internet has done. You think about something like people that are that are sexual predators, right? Say you're a, a, a God, a God forbid, like, a pedo, into pedophilia or something. Before the internet, you kind of had to seek things out. And, you know, if you wanted pornography, you think that's not easy stuff to get. Right. And then with the Internet, anonymity sometimes fuels, you know, it allows it allows people to in under the cover of darkness to kind of feed their worst angels or worst demons. 
And I, you know, there's this story of this woman, Taylor Dumpson, who's an African-American woman who becomes president at American University, the student body president, and as a black woman faces all, I mean, awful discrimination. You would, what happened a couple of years ago in DC, you, a lot of people in this country would imagine, oh, that this is the story from the fifties or something you yeah. know, in Mississippi. And, you know, she talks about things like Yik Yak, which I think is defunct now, but the anonymous chat group kind of thing. And I wonder if with racism, there's a similar thing to certain kind of sexual deviancy that winds up b- becoming really deleterious that people that for a while with diversity, maybe there's a curb on certain racist expression because it is viewed as deviant, but now there's all these places where you can do it under the cover of darkness. Mm -hmm. And so it it exposes just how, I think there's a tendency for people to say, of course there's racism, but in the extremis, right? And that's, but this was clearly pervasive in a pretty mainstream mid Atlantic you know, blue state area context. And and really that's what we've seen, right? I mean, we, we are now seeing hate in the open. A lot of these very ugly, dark forces, whether it's anti-black racism, Islamophobia, xenophobia, sexism, misogyny, um, et cetera, that we like to think are peripheral to the culture um, of this country aren't, right? They are mainstream. And that's one of the reasons I wrote this book, is there are literally tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of hate crimes every year in this country. I mean, just look at the FBI data, for example, right? According to the FBI, there was roughly 6,000 hate crimes in 2016. But according to the National Crime Victimization Survey, there are as many as 250 hate 250,000 hate crimes a year, right? The reason there's that gap is because the FBI report relies on voluntary reporting by law enforcement, not mandatory. Most police officers don't know what a hate crime is, don't want to report hate crimes, or want to pretend like hate doesn't exist in their backyard, right? But the fact of the matter is, is that it's quotidian, it's ubiquitous, and it is spiking in the classroom, public life, workplace, and university. And it's true, these internet tools, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, um, the now defunct Yik Yak also show how mainstream it is. I did a talk, a 13-minute interview with the Young Turks last week. You should see the hate online under the, the YouTube posting of that video. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going, and you can help launch several other podcasts projects i've got in the works so i invite you to be a patron through patreon of this which i think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy again any contribution is welcome but for five bucks a month 
you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Kress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. And it, it also seems like, I don't want to say Donald Trump created racism, but it seems like there is, in, in this administration, some kind of emboldening. Yeah. There is this sense in which it feels, it seems like, Certain people feel like we can come out of the closet now that where where there was some social shaming around ex- expressions of extremism and things like this. It, it, the stigma seems to be diminishing somewhat. Right. And, and, and that's the word. The word is emboldened and incite. And as I've met with survivors and impacted communities across the country, that's what they say. They say that hate preexisted Donald Trump. Hate will endure after Donald Trump. But the white supremacist, racist, sexist, misogynist man in the White House has emboldened and uh, uh, incited hate across this country. It's the worst form of bully pulpit. Donald Trump has fostered and incited hate on the basis of almost every human characteristic, including faith, national origin, sex, gender, sexual orientation, immigration status, faith, name it. He's done it. Do you remember a conscious time growing up where you thought, "Yeah, I'm other here. Like, the, I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I, I even this is my home, but yet I, I'm, I'm. It's not like there's something I, I about was bullied a lot when I was in elementary school, and that was very hard for me. Um, in sort of the second and third grade, I was the only sick kid in my school. And it was really hard. And I would come home from school and I would cry almost every single day. And it was a long time ago, but I remember that feeling. And it still informs, um, I shouldn't say it still informs, but it informed my decision in some ways to actually be a civil rights lawyer and to work on these issues. Yeah. You know, we know so much more about trauma now I mean, than we've ever known. And I mean, you talk a lot about PTSD and lots of the victim stories, it's been diagnosed with it, right? And it, what we know is that trauma lives in the nervous system, right? These body memories, and it's deep, and it doesn't, it, it's not, it, it, it's less cognitive, it's so visceral. The, the, I'm wondering, does, is, is that, does your work help deal with recovering from the trauma of, of, of being bullied and othered at such a vulnerable age? You know, that's an interesting question. Um, I do think that my work is generally cathartic in healing for someone who in general experiences discrimination and hate in this country, right? So yes, I I was bullied when I was young, but I've had all kinds of incidents where people have said menacing things to me or, you know, tried to attack me um, and the like. And one of the reasons I do this work um, is because I am somebody who's directly impacted. um, And I want to give a platform to folks 
who are also impacted. And I will say that I think it made a difference to the survivors in the book that I was sick and that I do look different and that I am directly impacted because they know that I have a sensitivity to what they've experienced that others often don't. And I will also say that one of the things that's been most powerful for me about this experience is how the survivors have found the storytelling and being included in the book as cathartic and healing for them. You know, Tanya Gersh is one of the the people profiled and uh, one of her lawyers was actually at the event in Georgia, um, you know, in Atlanta just a couple of nights ago. And he was on the stage uh, after the event. And he talked about how Tanya fought back by bringing a lawsuit against the Daily Stormer and Andrew England. But equally important to her was getting to tell her story and knowing that it's included in American hate and knowing that people across this country and the world will read her story. In, in the conclusion of the book, you, you make the statement that it, it, it's it's not original. It's off said and quoted, but you, you that, that conservatives view racism in terms of intent where liberals and progressives tend to view it in terms of impact. So for instance, let's say somebody's conservative white, you know, legislator, let's just say straight white male legislator or something in, in, in greater Atlanta. And, and, and they, and they cut, they vote to cut a, a, an assistance program that disproportionately affects people of color, right. in in urban communities, and they say, well, I didn't do it because it affected people of color. I did it because I don't think we can afford it. Or I don't think the government, I think that private sector stuff does it better or something. So then, then it's not discriminatory, right? Because I didn't intend it. Uh, whereas liberals would say, well, you could not, you, you could actually, your prejudice and predispositions combined with the power you exercise actually could be discriminatory without your intending, you know? And, and yeah. But this does seem like a sort of, to put us at loggerheads, right? Because of these different ways of conceiving of, of what hatred looks like, what discrimination looks like. It seems that we, in our tribal polarized culture, the more we talk about the issue, it seems like the more, I mean, almost the worse it gets sometimes because of missing this, right. And, and, and talking past each other. And it seems to kind of heat up the tensions rather than, serve to, to mitigate them. I mean, is that, is that a frustrating thing in your work to see that dynamic play out? I mean, I, I, it's a really good question. I, I think it is frustrating, but I think one of the things that is unique about this moment is that with this administration and with this cabinet, and in many ways, even with this Congress, because of their blind support of the president, We know what they think of impacted communities, right? We know what Donald Trump thinks because he constantly talks about it, right? Uh, uh, Mexicans as rapists, Syrians as snakes, uh, criticizing disabled reporters, uh, criticizing Black Lives Matter uh, uh, protesters, suggesting there's a moral equivalence between, you know, counter protesters in Charlottesville and white supremacists, equally good people on, on both sides. So in this case, you can't actually say that this is somebody or this is a Congress that's well-intentioned, right? That's sort of the first point. The second thing is that the reason that so many communities experience 
some of these sort of different forms of state deprivation, whether it's the Muslim ban, whether it's the immigration raids, whether it's deprivation of health care as state sponsored forms of hate is because they've made it so clear how not only will it disproportionately impact their communities, but like in the case of health care, it's literally a death sentence. And yet the government continues. And then on top of that, there also is, I think, examples of how legislators actually react differently if and when the community that is most impacted happens to be their own, which is why we've seen, I think, in many cases, states respond very differently to the opioid epidemic and to talk about it as a public health crisis. They could have said the same thing about marijuana or about any type of drug use going back decades. Instead, they decided to criminalize it and use the drug wars as a way of disenfranchising and incapacitating a large chunk of the African-American community. So I think there are examples that show um, that in many ways, um, who gets sympathy and who gets disdain depends upon, you know, the racial identity of the parties. Historic, historically, classical conservatives would often accuse liberals or progressives of having too optimistic of an anthropology, right? That, that you think that, hey, you're going to kind of just eliminate things like poverty and war and, you know, it's too utopian and you got to be more realistic about the human condition. Does it seem like that's on racism that kind of flips or something? Because what you have is is it seems like people who are more attuned to the issues you're writing about are have have a, a, a little bit of a darker view of the human condition and how systems can really nurture the worst you know the, the not better angels you know the the darker demons and, and and yet it seems like it's almost the the conservatives in the commentary and the and, and the and the cable news sort of atmosphere that actually have the kind of rosy anthropology they used to accuse progressive. Oh, no, it's a couple bad eggs. And no, I mean, people are really generally good and, and, and seem to sort of make a, a paint a picture of the human condition that traditional conservatives would have eschewed. Um, I, I'm not sure I'm following. I should say like, it's, it, it, it's, it seems like today, like, like old school conservatives were very quick to admit that humans were capable of all sorts of tragic things. And that's why utopian projects didn't work. Right. That's why they were. But now it seems like when people, but progressives point out the pernicious nature of, of, of institutional discrimination, wrong gender, wrong race. Or, yeah. Conservatives tend to sound like what they used to critique and, Oh no, people aren't that bad. You're just a couple of bad apples. People are genuine. They, they tend to sort of uh, have a rosy, almost naive picture of how Americans are, that most yeah, Americans I, are good and aren't impacted by these systemic things and are just really yeah, open-minded I think, people. I, I, I think it's part of this prod, broader project of ignoring and rewriting history. Conservatives don't want to acknowledge that this country was built on a hate crime, the decimation and destruction of Native communities, and don't want to acknowledge that it was furthered on additional hate crimes, including slavery, Jim Crow, and mass incarceration. I mean, you can talk about America being the land of the free and equality under the law, but it would literally take generations and generations and generations to rebuild the wealth that was stolen and plundered 
um, from black people across this country. So it, it's, it's, it's this thing where I think it's convenient for conservatives to believe uh, and preach American exceptionalism and to dismiss racism, hate, and prejudice as the work of a few bad apples. But yet we've seen time and again um, that it's not just a few bad apples, that our institutions are biased and they are often racist. And African-American and Native communities in particular experience discrimination and hate in almost every facet of American life. I'm reading a book right now called The Suicide of the West. It's, it, it, it's, it's, it's an intriguing book. Part of the argument is that tribalism is sort of built into human evolution and the liberal democratic project is kind of counterintuitive. Like when, when European romanticism with it, people like Herder and stuff like that, when they rose up against this kind of enlightenment cosmopolitanism, there was something about their, and their na- the assertion of nationalism. There was something about the, the evolutionary condition they were asserting. Right. So I, and yet that's not the best of the human condition, right? The, 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 it, it, it's, it's something based on how we've evolved to be tribal sort of, people but you know i think liberal society offers a broader picture of that and yet it seems like in diverse societies the the, the diversity can at its worst call call back the tribalism right that call so i mean i wondered is this sort of like is this the tragic legacy of of, of the enlightenment project that that this diversity that that the, the, the desire to sort of go past our tribalism sometimes conjures it back up in some in some of the worst ways i mean that's an interesting question and I, i'm I, i'm not sort of a theorist on those issues i mean i think broadly speaking i do feel comfortable saying um that there are times where i think it is totally normal um and appropriate um for folks to want to connect with people in their own community that's what community is. And that's why we have houses of worship. And that's why we have community centers. And that's why, um, uh, you know, you know, entire nations have similar cuisines um, and uh, uh, traditions uh, and culture and dress. Um, so I think that that's normal. But I think we've also seen that um, uniqueness and celebration, that nation um, isn't mutually exclusive. Um, with a celebration of difference um, and awareness. And the thing with what is happening in this moment and what I have found in my book is it's one thing for somebody to have a preference, right, to, I don't know, want to spend a little more time uh, uh, with their own community. It's another thing um, to terrorize and commit acts of hate against your next door neighbor and against people in your community. You know, and people in that have experience in recovery groups and in 12 step groups often talk about how when they hit rock bottom and get out of the denial, there's a freedom, right? And actually acknowledging they're powerless opens up a cathartic route where, where they can really experience healing and forgiveness. And, and I wonder, is there, a parallel with the kind of racism that lies at the heart of our of our nation's founding that that it seems like people of privilege that have let their guard down often 
find it liberative to go on a journey of 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 owning the whole story, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And yet it's that denial, right? It's getting yeah. over the hump saying there's a problem, right? I've got a problem, which is, seems so hard for, I mean, I, for, for majority, you know, for oh, white yeah. majority America to get to the place where you can admit, hey, this is a real problem. On page one of the book, I say, right, the United States was built on a hate crime. And I've been getting hate mail because of that. I mean, I, I think it's clear to anyone who knows anything about world history that there were indigenous inhabitants on this land. And we committed terrible atrocities against them. We are still committing atrocities against them right now. I mean, that's what Donald Trump is doing at the Bears Ears Monument um, out west, um, whether it's the uh, a desecration of sacred native sites, um, the, the oil pipelines. And I think it begins um, with an acknowledgement. I think you get to an acknowledgement through education, and through persistence, you know, it, it, you're not going to change somebody. You're not going to get someone to acknowledge um, this country's dark past through a single conversation, which is why it's got to be inculcated. You know, they've got to read books like American Hate. They've got to read firsthand accounts by Native Indigenous folks from that time. They've got to read stories written by Native Indigenous folks today. They've got to learn from African-American directors who are showing in film the dark, ugly history of this country. Um, and, and they've just got to be open to doing the work. And then the media and the public um, has to be open to receiving it. Is part of the strange, perverse blessing of the Trump era that it exposes the myth that progress is inevitable? I mean, yes. because there's a kind of like, you know, you look at Weimar, the Weimar Republic, you know, I mean, different parallel. I mean, it's much less stable democracy then, but that's one of the most progressive democracies the world had seen. And then it gives way to the Nazi party. I mean, the right. These things, there, there's this sort of naivete, right? Well, we've got a black president now and things are just going to get better. But they don't have to get better. Right. Yeah. I mean, Frederick Douglass, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. We've got to earn it. We've got to live it. We've got to keep it. We've got to fight for it. And I think there was a large sense of complacency. And I do think that if there is a silver lining to this administration, it's that it is pushing some people to have some of these difficult conversations, to speak to their neighbors, to speak to their own families. At the dinner table, I mean, there were all those reports about families not having Thanksgiving dinner together. That's good. We need to have those difficult conversations that you could have just brushed aside for years, decades, generations, right? Let's have those conversations because if we don't, the next version of Trump will be worse. In, you know, there's, there's a, a thread of, of hope in the book, again, that, that runs throughout. And also there... The, there's a fatigue too, right? That, 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 that being constantly traumatized and othered is, is, is tiring. I mean, I wonder how you deal as an activist with the fatigue. I mean, with, with kind of pushing the days it feels like I'm just pushing a freaking boulder up a hill. And I, I, I mean, I don't know that I'm going to get, you know, it feels like it's going to roll down. <laughs> I mean, it's hard. I will tell you that, I mean, 
for me personally, it's um, it was a difficult a, a process. It was isolating. It was lonely. I talk in the book about how I had moments of extreme sadness and grief, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to turn. One of the few things that would give me consolation was um, going to my family home in Virginia and spending time with our two big black German shepherds, Jake and Sophie, because dogs know one thing, and that's unconditional love. And that's what I would do. I would come back from these searing interviews, and before I would listen to the words of survivors in these tape recordings that were you know, six to nine hours, I would just be outside with those animals, and it gave me a lot of comfort. So everyone has to sort of see, you know, what works for them. Um, but um, it, it's hard. And I do think that, you know, we need to be um, mindful and caring and support activists uh, who do this work every day because, you know, secondary trauma is real. And a lot of them don't have the resources they need to pause, heal and uh, recommit. But again, um, I'm very proud to have worked on this book. Um, for me, I, I'd love for everyone in the world to read this book. But the most important thing to me um, was that every survivor in the book um, just feels so proud um, to be included um, and has found it to be so healing and cathartic um, to be part of this, you know, compilation. And, and that's been very rewarding. Do you, do you stay? <laughs> do you stay in touch with the survivors? I mean, absolutely, absolutely. And one of the things I'm trying to do uh, is that I'm hoping to host community conversations in each of the cities where the survivors reside. So next month I'm doing an event in Denver, Colorado, um, which is where Jeanette Visgura resides. I'm hoping to do an event in Philadelphia, actually, with Marwan Crady. Um, that's where the uh, Al-Aqsa Islamic Society was targeted um, in December 2015, the day that Trump said he was going to ban Muslims. A, a pig's head was found outside the, uh, the mosque. So I'm trying to do community events in, in each of these cities um, with the survivors. Well, my, my, my thoughts and prayers are with you and, and stay in, you know, stay in the struggle because it, it's, it's important work and, and you have a gift for telling stories that could really extinguish hope in a hopeful way. And I mean, I, I just, I encourage listeners to pick up a copy of the book because it, it is, it's realistic and, and yet hopeful. I mean, it, it's, it's neither pessimistic nor optimistic, but full of hope, which I think is, is, is a transcendent kind of thing. Thanks for writing the book and thanks for talking to me about it. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, the pleasure was all mine. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Arjun for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, American Hate Survivors Speak Out. You won't regret it. That I promise. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.